This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our health lead today. What could be a massive step forward for America's first coronavirus vaccine right now? An FDA panel is discussing whether Pfizer's vaccine should be authorized for emergency use. The FDA could give the official green light as soon as this meeting ends, and the first Americans could theoretically get vaccinated by this weekend. It is a glimmer of hope in what has been a terrible and tragic week. Right now, the U.S. has a record number, record number of COVID hospitalizations, more than 106,000. Yesterday was the deadliest day of the pandemic so far in the United States, and one of the deadliest days in American history, with 3,124 Americans losing their lives to this virus. And another 221,000 Americans tested positive just yesterday. Horrific milestones that President Trump, of course, has yet to even acknowledge. He's too focused on continuing to spew lies and conspiracy theories about the election. I want to bring in CNN's Nick Watt in Los Angeles. Nick, where are we on the discussion at the FDA and the advisory panel? And where are we on the pending vote on the Pfizer vaccine? Well, Jake, this panel started meeting at nine o'clock this morning. They just took a quick break. They are now in the final discussion section before they take a vote. Now, it's been streamed all day. I'm watching it right now. And as members themselves have said, it is so important that this entire process is transparent. Thank you very much to both of you. Uh, History right now being made in little boxes. Younger individuals tended to have more reactions. But in all age groups, the vaccine was well tolerated and the reactions were within an acceptable range. We believe that our data have satisfied the EUA requirements for a COVID-19 vaccine, as you see here on the green check marks. We will have a single question for the committee to vote on. Less than two hours from now, that advisory committee could vote to recommend a green light for Pfizer's vaccine. Our plan is to take their recommendations into account for our decision-making and make a decision shortly thereafter. Again, it really depends upon the complexity of the issues discussed, uh, but we intend to act quickly. Needles and syringes already on the move, nearly three million vaccine doses ready to be deployed within hours to states, but. And I'm really, really, you know, just fearing what's gonna happen over the next several weeks. Uh, Hospitals are overwhelmed, people are tired, And quite frankly, uh, people are dying. Yesterday in America, 3,124 people were reported killed by COVID-19, the highest daily toll of the pandemic. More lives lost than 9-11. Get used to it. The CDC forecasts another 70,000 or so Americans could die from now through New Year's Day. That's an average of over 3,000 people every day. ICUs at one in three hospitals were over 90% full last week. Reno, Nevada. This wasn't a hospital. It was the parking garage, now filled with beds <coughs> and patients. He coughs at nighttime. I can hear him. And if I yell, he can hear me. He knows that I'm still alive. The worst days, months could still be to come. So, Bill Nye, the science guy, is on TikTok explaining why masks really do work. Viruses don't travel by themselves. They travel in little droplets of spit and snot. And the fibers are a tangle. And those who know best are. 
Grinching Christmas. No Christmas parties. There is not a safe Christmas party in this country right now. I don't think we're going to see really a sizable amount of vaccine for the American public well into March and April. And some other nuggets we've picked up from this ongoing committee hearing. Uh, this Pfizer vaccine can be manufactured quickly and safely. It is highly efficient. Two doses, 21 days apart work best, but we still don't know how long the immunity might last, and we still don't know quite how long this meeting is going to last. The chair did say that a previous meeting went until 6.45 p.m. Eastern, and he said that they don't want to go quite that long tonight. Jake? All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins me now to discuss this very important meeting. Sanjay, the FDA advisory committee has been meeting since nine this morning, East Coast time. We know the vaccine has hit FDA efficacy standards, but there are still some questions remaining on the safety of the vaccine for certain groups of people. Tell us more. Yeah. I, so when you looked at the trial results overall, uh, one thing you were looking for is obviously to see how well it worked. But then also, were there sample sizes large enough for certain groups of people to actually make some sort of determination? So we can show you uh, there's certain groups that at least, you know, we're going to hear the final recommendations. But there are certain groups, either because of small sample size or because they were just excluded, uh, it's going to be unclear so far if the vaccine will be authorized for them. Children under the age of 16, pregnant women, breastfeeding mothers, uh, people who have existing immunocompromised sort of situation. And as we know now, Jake, uh, the news from the last couple of days, people who've had severe allergic reactions to vaccines in the past. And I can tell you in that last category, for example, there, the people who had severe allergic reactions were excluded from the Pfizer trial. So there just wasn't a lot of data there. Pregnant women were excluded from the Pfizer trial. But there were women who became pregnant while in the trial. So they have some data from that. Sometimes the way it comes down, Jake, is that they basically say, we don't have enough data to suggest it's beneficial. We don't have any reason to believe that it's going to be risky. Discuss with your health care provider. That's what a pregnant woman or a woman of childbearing age may be told, Jake. All right. It's, I mean, we, people have to remember this virus came on the world suddenly and uh, this, this, these vaccines are being developed uh, quickly as well. Um, Sanjay, uh, it's just, yeah. I, 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 I'm so sick of saying this to you, but once again, the U.S. reported its deadliest day in this pandemic. It was Wednesday, yesterday, more deaths than on Pearl Harbor, more than 3,100 Americans, more deaths than September 11th. Uh, this vaccine can't come soon enough. Um, is there going to be added pressure to rush the approval process because of how bad it's getting out there? Yeah, I mean, um, Jake, first of all, it, it is it is hard to believe uh, that we're, we're seeing these numbers. And I'm glad you bring it up all the time, because I think people are becoming inured to it. Uh, it just sort of washes over them. And it's worth repeating often because there is something that can be done about it. Just presenting a problem without presenting a plan is a terrible idea. But if you could present a plan and there have been very effective ones proposed aside from the vaccine, uh, it makes all the difference. I mean, we could turn this around, lower the numbers within the next few weeks without a vaccine, without all the things that we've been talking about for months, Jake. I think, I think there is obviously uh, added pressure to get this vaccine out as quickly as possible. When you talk to people like the commissioner of the FDA, what's also very much weighing on their minds is the idea that there's so much vaccine hesitancy as well. So how do you assure people that you're giving this a full and thorough review? I asked Dr. Stephen Hahn about that. 
if we don't do our job to reassure and ensure the safety and efficacy uh, of, of, the sa of the vaccine to the American people, then we're going to contribute to vaccine hesitancies. You know, Jake, it's no secret. I mean, there's been some issues with the FDA's emergency use authorization and other things like hydroxychloroquine. This they want to, to do right. And it's taking a few days longer than, for example, what we saw in the U.K. Sanjay, how many people need to get vaccinated to get the United States to a point where we can actually feel some sort of impact? You, you know, it's interesting, Jake. Um, when, when you look at this vaccine, what it really is shown to do is to decrease the likelihood someone gets sick from COVID-19. Okay, they may still get the virus. They still may even be able to transmit the virus, but it's really to prevent them from getting sick. So in terms of overall deaths, you will see probably a, an impact earlier. You target people who are most likely at risk of getting seriously ill or dying, you'll probably see some impact. But in terms of overall bringing the numbers down, that's when you start talking about herd immunity and things like that. You see some impact, you know, when we may have 30% of the country vaccinated. Keep in mind, 15 to 20% of the country may already be immunized because they've been infected at some point. So they may have some lasting immunity for a period of time. And then probably the end of the summer, when you get to this number that Dr. Fauci always talks about, 65 to 75%, you have enough, enough people uh, immunized that way, just makes it harder for the virus to jump around and find a host. End of summer, early fall, Jake. Sanjay, we assume that the Pfizer vaccine is going to get authorized, but there are only 2.9 million doses that are going to be initially distributed. 2.9 million in a country of, what, 340 million? I mean, that seems low. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is going to take a while. I mean, so this is the Pfizer vaccine, 6.4 million doses. They're, they're putting 500,000 away, essentially in a stock supply, dividing the number in half. That's where you get the 2.9 million and sending those out, keeping the other 2.9 in refrigerators for the second dose. But you're right. And, and, and states are going to have to make some tough choices immediately in terms of how they're going to distribute this vaccine. Uh, Pennsylvania, for example, is going to mainly uh, vaccinate healthcare workers. Alabama and Alaska are going to sort of split the vaccine doses between healthcare workers and long-term care facilities. But the idea is that there is hopefully, this works, going to be these rolling supplies of vaccines coming into these states over the next several weeks and months. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We have more breaking news for you, not just a few. Uh, but dozens of House Republicans are making it official and supporting President Trump's ridiculous legal fight to overturn the will of the voters in four states that went for Biden. And then thousands of Americans waiting for hours to put food on the table. More than 850,000 Americans filing for unemployment last week. What is it going to take for Congress to agree on a stimulus deal? Stay with us. Breaking news in our 2020 lead, we have just learned that more than half of the House Republican caucus, 106 House Republicans to be exact, are backing President Trump's deranged legal push to undermine the election results and disenfranchise millions of voters in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Georgia. President Trump is staging something of a nonviolent coup by siding with the Texas Attorney General and asking the Supreme Court to overturn the vote in these four states that Joe Biden won. 
the lawsuit is full of all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories. The attorney general of one of the states or commonwealths in question, Josh Shapiro from Pennsylvania, called it a, quote, seditious abuse of the judicial process. And it is hard to see how that is anything but dead on accurate. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins us now live at the White House. Caitlin, there are a few notable House Republicans who did not sign on to this effort here. Uh, Tell us who. Yeah, that's right. But it's still stunning that 106 elected lawmakers, some who were elected or reelected in this election that they're now trying to imply was rife with fraud, have signed on to this, Jake. Because, you know, in weeks where we have had so many stunning developments since the election, this is certainly one of the most, with 106 lawmakers now on the record. Though notably, there are a few people in Republican leadership who did not sign on to this brief. That's Kevin McCarthy, Liz Cheney, a few others that are not on this list, though people like Steve Scalise did sign on to this brief, agreeing that they should overturn the results of this election, siding with this Texas lawsuit that so many people have dismissed as frivolous. And remember, it was the president who personally instructed the Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson to go out and get Republicans to put their names on this list. In another attempt to discredit Joe Biden's win, President Trump is now asking how the country can be run by an illegitimate president while he clings to another far-fetched lawsuit as his efforts to override the election grow more desperate by the minute. All I ask for is people with wisdom and with courage, that's all, because if people are here, certain very important people, if they have wisdom and if they have courage, we're going to win That was Trump's message for a Hanukkah party as he's now eagerly backing a lawsuit filed by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton attempting to stop the certification of votes in four swing states that Trump lost. Legal experts said they doubt the high court will take it up, but Trump tweeted the Supreme Court has a chance to save our country from the greatest election abuse in the history of the United States. This afternoon, Trump held a conveniently timed, but according to the White House, previously scheduled lunch with Republican attorneys general, including Ken Paxton, who is currently being investigated by the FBI over allegations he abused his office to benefit a political donor. GOP Senator Ben Sass implied Paxton's efforts to do Trump's bidding had more to do with his legal troubles, telling the Washington Examiner, quote, it looks like a fella begging for a pardon filed a PR stunt rather than a lawsuit. CNN has learned Trump personally called Senator Ted Cruz and asked him to argue the case if it goes before the Supreme Court. And I told him I'd be happy to. And I believe the Supreme Court should choose to take the case. I think they should hear the appeal. But not all Texas Republicans are on board. Senator John Cornyn said, I frankly struggle to understand the legal theory of it. Veteran Congresswoman Kay Granger called it a distraction. And Congressman Chip Roy said, I cannot support an effort that will almost certainly fail. Other Republicans appear ready to move on as well. Today, North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis said he will consider Biden's win official after electors meet and certify the results on Monday. Yeah, I think he's the presumptive president-elect, but we just can't, uh, I won't at the same time dismiss that there are uh, filings that deserve uh, to go through the justice system like anybody else in America. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Laura Coates into this discussion. And Laura, I mean, I'm stunned. More than half of the Republicans in the House have signed on to this lawsuit that legal experts, conservative legal experts, have said is is a garbage lawsuit, is insane, 
uh, would set horrific precedents. What do you make of this? I mean, it's so completely counter to even common sense that this is happening because the Supreme Court doesn't want to weigh in on a political matter where there hasn't been some real basis for them to even hear it, where you have a state that says, you know what, even if we're not really affected by it, we want to lodge a complaint only after we've waited to see the outcome and only after our own um, person who's bringing the lawsuit not only is an indicted person right now, probably auditioning for a pardon right now, Jake, but also did make changes that his people in Texas relied upon. Now he wants to say that other states couldn't have done so and other electors couldn't have done so at the same time. It's absurd. But what you're seeing here really is going to be a preview to what's going to happen on January, what is it, 7th, when the Congress is going to meet to try to count these electoral votes and they have a chance to object to them. You're seeing a preview of that political theater on full display that's going to most assuredly be the case now. Well, it's just absolutely undemocratic. I mean, it is seditious. Uh, Caitlin, the attorneys general for Michigan and Pennsylvania, both Democrats, they're being very vocal today opposing this stunt with briefs at the Supreme Court. The Michigan attorney general writes, quote, Texas comes as a stranger to this matter and should not be heard here, quote, unquote. Uh, Have we ever seen this kind of legal showdown between states before over anything other than borders or water rights? I, I don't think in a situation like this, and that's why you're even seeing Texas lawmakers say that they can't get behind this, because even if you do agree about the questions about mail-in voting or the other, of course, allegations that the president has raised often baselessly, they say federalism is a thing here, and having Texas sue another state for the way they are running their elections, and of course, they're only suing states that Donald Trump lost, is their problem here. So even some of those conservative Uh, Very conservative Texas lawmakers are refusing to get behind this. And if you talk to sources in the Trump campaign and the legal team and the White House that are dealing with this, they know it's not a realistic case. They do not even think that the Supreme Court is going to take it up. But what the president can now do and why he obviously instructed Mike Johnson to go and get these uh, Republicans to sign on is now he can say, look how many Republicans are behind me on this. Look how many Republican attorneys general are behind me on this. And so he can use that to continue with his push of a... uh, his baseless push that this was a rigged election. Well, it works the other way, too. I mean, these members of Congress and these attorneys general, they're going to be forever associated with this crap, with this insane, un-American, undemocratic lawsuit. Laura, we interviewed conservative attorney George Conway this week. He's a Trump critic, but Trump did early on consider bringing him him on as solicitor general. Here is what George Conway had to say about this specific lawsuit. Is there any merit? No, no. This is the most insane thing yet. It's absurd and an embarrassment. And for a public official, let alone any lawyer, let alone any member of the Supreme Court bar, bring this lawsuit is atrocious. I mean, this is what conservative legal experts are saying, in addition to nonpartisan, middle of the road and liberal legal experts. Even the phrase atrocious is a vast understatement here. I mean, you have something that is nonsensical. There's no evidentiary support that's ever been put forth. You've got states that have already decided from their state Supreme Court levels how to interpret their own constitutions. You have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the role of the Supreme Court is in even hearing cases and weighing in. And you also have people who I think are really misinterpreting. And I think that Donald Trump and his legal team is misinterpreting what Bush v. Gore was about. 
The Bush v. Gore case where you had the Supreme Court weigh in, there was actual an actual controversy, some understanding of, of who may have won, and there was actually a case in controversy. Here you have none of that. You have no concern about whether or not Joe Biden secured the requisite number of electoral college votes or whether there's any irregularities. And don't just take my word for it. Take Attorney General William Barr, who has said there are is no evidence of irregularities or widespread fraud that he is aware of under the entire department to overturn the election. And yet and still you still have this, which is why I say the notion here about this being nonsensical, look to the person who is bringing it entirely. Talking about Mr. Paxton, he is somebody who, of course, knows full well, I'm sure, the power of the presidential pardon, and he himself is indicted and could be the recipient of a preemptive pardon. But also note here that what's also antithetical is also anti-Republican, last I checked. I thought that the Republican Party were also known for people who were advocating states' rights. Well, what is more antithetical to that than the notion of yeah. telling a state that is not impacted that they have to change their ways that they conduct their own state elections? Yep. Befuddling. Laura Co Coates and Caitlin Collins, thanks to both of you. President-elect Joe Biden is uh, pulling more names from the Obama era for his cabinet. What happened to an administration that's a bridge to the future that Biden promised during the campaign? Stay with us. In the 2020 lead today, President-elect Joe Biden today announced the return of two familiar faces tapped to join his own administration. He wants Susan Rice to lead the White House Domestic Policy Council. You may recall she was President Obama's national security advisor and Obama's first ambassador to the United Nations. Biden also selected Obama's former White House chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, to lead the Department of Veteran Affairs. Biden now has at least 12 names on his roster that come back from the Obama administration. Let's bring in CNN's Arlette Sines. She covers the Biden transition from Wilmington, Delaware. Arlette, the Biden team says this is about expertise as well as his comfort level with people he knows. Um, but he sure is opening himself up to criticism of wanting to preside over a third Obama term. And Jake, President-elect Biden has really, in these early cabinet picks, focused on people that he trusts and has relationships with. But many of those relationships were forged during the Obama administration. If you take a look at his recent cabinet picks over the course of the past few weeks, there are so many familiar faces that worked and came up during the Obama administration that Biden has decided to tap into, including longtime friends like John Kerry uh, and also Tom Vilsack, close aides like Tony Blinken. Lincoln. These are all people that Biden worked with closely in the Obama White House. And if you take a look at the five cabinet or five appointees and nominees he's expected to announce tomorrow, four of those worked in the Obama administration. Looking at Tom Vilsack, who has already served as agriculture secretary twice in over two terms before. Also, Susan Rice, who will be leading the White House Domestic Policy Council. So Biden, he has said that he is not presiding over an Obama third term. That the circumstances are different now, but he is certainly turning to people that have that experience and that he has relationships with. One of Biden's selling points during the presidential campaign was that he would be ready on day one. And you are seeing that carried through in his cabinet announcements with these types of picks. And the president-elect is hoping that he will have his cabinet filled out by Christmas. Jake. All right, Arlette Signs in Wilmington, Delaware, thanks so much. Let's discuss with our, my panel. Uh, Laura, after his first round of cabinet announcements, uh, Biden was asked by uh, Lester Holt from NBC about people who thought he was trying to create a third Obama term. Uh, listen to what Biden had to say. 
This is not a third Obama term because there's we, we face a totally different world than we faced in the Obama-Biden administration. The president, this President Trump has changed the landscape. It's become uh, America first, which meant America alone. We find ourselves in a position where our alliances are being frayed. So he says it's not a third Obama term because the landscape is different. But, you know, these are just some of the people who worked under President Obama, who Biden has added to his team. It's a lot uh, of reheated uh, Obama administration officials. I guess the, the biggest question is empirically, is there anything wrong with that, Laura? I mean, so far, Democrats uh, haven't taken particular issue with the fact that it's a lot of carryovers. They have been, progressives have been slightly frustrated that there aren't as many progressive or bold picks as they would like to see, or that who they wanted to go in certain slots didn't end up there, like Congresswoman Fudge. A lot of members wanted her to be agriculture secretary instead. Secretary Vilsack, who was Agriculture Secretary during Obama's full eight years, is now going to be carrying that job again and has is very close with Biden. So it's not just Obama officials. It's also people that have close relationships with Biden that he appears to be picking over other picks that members are putting forward. Ron, the New York Times describes uh, Biden's staff picks like this, quote, for all the talk that Mr. Biden is abiding by a complicated formula of ethnicity, gender and experience as he builds his administration. And he is perhaps the most important criteria for landing a cabinet post or a top White House job appears to be having a longstanding relationship with the president elect himself. Now, certainly you want a team that gets along. You want to be comfortable that people you're picking are good people. But is there also a risk that by choosing people that he has close relationships, uh, these are a officials who won't want to tell him no, who won't speak up when something is wrong? And B, is there not a risk that he's passing over other talented people just because he doesn't know them as well? Yeah, I think I think on both fronts there's a risk, and I think there's an even larger macro risk. I think there is kind of a yellow flag coming from, or a yellow light coming from this this kind of collection of appointments as he goes, which I think is kind of a strange uh, assortment that he that he is putting together here. It is older, and it is people who are familiar with him, uh, and it's people who have long experience in Washington. You can make the case, yeah, that's what you need to be ready for day one. You could also make the case that Joe Biden's greatest challenge as someone who has spent 50 years in public life. He he had the longest span between his first election and his nomination of any presidential nominee in American history. His biggest challenge, I think, in many ways is to show that he understands this is a different world uh, than, than, than he operated in for most of his tenure. And the fact that he is not reaching out, as he promised during the campaign, to that next generation of leaders, I think kind of bespeaks a larger question about whether he is ready to adapt his own thinking and his own approaches to a very different circumstances that obtained for most of his career in Washington. And Laura, Biden made five uh, appointments official today, including former Obama chief of staff Dennis McDonough uh, to lead the VA, former U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice to lead the Domestic Policy Council. Um, Are any of these choices going to quiet the concerns from progressives that you referred to earlier who feel like uh, they're not represented in a Biden administration? I don't think so, because in, from the progressives that I spoke to today, you know, after looking over the entire slate, including the ones announced today, they don't feel as though uh, they're entirely represented. Uh, I spoke to two progressive members who are also members of the Congressional Black Caucus who said that they really want to see 
uh, an African-American as the attorney general uh, or that they want to see someone who has experience with being discriminated against, who understands what that's like. And so far as we know, it appears as though the favorite for Biden right now is Doug Jones, again, uh, an outgoing senator who's someone that has a close relationship with Biden. So right now, uh, there's a lot of pressure on Biden, whether it's to appoint a black attorney general or there's also a Latino lawmakers who are now pushing him to make sure that there's a Latina in the cabinet because so far he hasn't named one to, to be a secretary. All right, Laura Barone Lopez and Ron Brownstein, thanks to both of you. Chatter on Capitol Hill today after a piece in the New Yorker magazine raised questions about Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, Jane Mayer, reporting that aides familiar with the senator's situation describe her as struggling. Quote, Speaking on background and with respect for her accomplished career, they say her short-term memory has grown so poor that she often forgets she has been briefed on a topic, accusing her staff of failing to do so just after they have, unquote. CNN's Manu Raj is on Capitol Hill for us. Manu, how much concern has there been about Senator Feinstein in the Senate when it comes to her awareness of everything that's going on? Uh, there has been a fair amount of concern uh, among Democrats who, are, who look at the issue, and it's difficult for a lot of them, given that she is a respected member of this body. She's the longest-serving woman currently serving in this body. She's been in this. She's accomplished so much in her career, but there has been a decline that has been evident to people who have interacted with her, reporters who have interacted with her, and aides and members as well. And that all led to uh, something earlier this year, which is very unusual in the Senate, which is her essentially agreeing to step aside as the top Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Rarely do we see that happen, but she did that in the aftermath of the outrage that came from the left over her handling of the Amy Coney Barrett hearing. She was not one of the lead Democrats who was involved in the strategy. The other Democrats on the committee were, even though she is the top Democrat on the committee, she essentially let other Democrats take charge. And during the committee hearing, while she did ask Amy Coney Barrett a number of questions about her issues uh, in raised concerns as well. She also praised Barrett multiple times, and she also praised the handling of the hearings by the Senate Republican chairman, Lindsey Graham, at the same time as Democrats were trying to contend that the hearing process was a sham. That all led to Democrats saying that she needs to step aside. Ultimately, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, said he had a very stern conversation with her afterwards, and the New Yorker article says that he had to have that conversation with her on multiple occasions, and I'm told uh, from a source that that is accurate reflection of how that interaction went down. So she has stepped aside from that top post. She will, even if Democrats take the Senate, Jake, she would have been the first woman to chair the Senate Judiciary Committee, but that is not going to happen anymore now that Dick Durbin is the top Democrat on the committee. But Jake, she was just reelected in 2018. So she still has several years to serve, even though she is the oldest member of the Senate at 87. Yeah, my my late grandmother used to have a needlepoint in the kitchen that said, old age is not for sissies. Uh, a sad situation. Manu Raju, thank you so much. Any moment the FDA could recommend a green light for the Pfizer vaccine, we're live at one of the facilities that will start shipping the vaccine. That's next. We're back with breaking news in our health lead. Any minute, an FDA panel could vote on a recommendation of emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine for coronavirus. I want to bring in CNN's Pete Montine, who's standing nearby the Pfizer facility in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Pete, assuming that the FDA grants this emergency authorization shortly after the show, let's say, how soon will shipments go out? Pfizer says that trucks carrying the vaccine, Jake, 
could begin leaving here within 24 hours of the FDA emergency use authorization. We know that this spot, Pfizer's plant in Kalamazoo, Michigan, is critical to vaccine distribution. It's largest facility, 1,300 acres, a sprawling complex. We know that vaccine arrived here late last month, and Operation Warp Speed says vaccine will be leaving here bound for 600 individual locations, places like hospitals, CVS, Walgreens, pharmacies. We have also learned that UPS and FedEx will carry the packages containing the vaccine doses. UPS, responsible for the eastern half of the country, those packages cased in dry ice. The Pfizer vaccine needs to be negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and each package will contain a thermal monitor able to broadcast the temperature of the package back to UPS headquarters in case there is any sort of problem. So, Jake, this is a massive movement, and it all begins right here in Michigan. A huge logistical challenge. Uh, Thank you so much, Pete Montine in Kalamazoo. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss is uh, Rick Bright, a former director of HHS Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. Uh, He is now an advisor for President-elect Biden on COVID. Um, Rick, good to see you again. As Pete just reported, FedEx and UPS are ready to ship at moment's notice. When are we going to be able to actually see the impact of this vaccine in terms of lives saved and uh, the spread being slowed? Well, Jake, thanks for having me on. Today's been a, a really busy day with, as you can imagine, the FDA reviewing every bit of information that is available about the Pfizer vaccine. It's been a great day for science. If anyone's tuned in to the the seven hours that they're ongoing now, you can see how seriously these independent experts and scientists are taking every piece of information. So we'll have confidence when they make a recommendation to the FDA that the vaccine would be usable under this emergency use authorization. As you mentioned uh, right before, it's a very complicated distribution plan that will happen. The first dose will go into people soon, and then a second dose three weeks later. And there's very few doses of vaccine available. So I don't think we'll start seeing a really notable impact in the large population until we have a lot of people vaccinated. That's still gonna take us probably into next spring because of the number of doses that are available and how complex it is to get it downstream. And as you know, trying to convince people to take the vaccine is still a big challenge because there's still a lot of a lack of confidence in the vaccine we need to work on. Well, let's talk about that because according to a new Quinnipiac poll, 61% of Americans say they are willing to take the vaccine, but 33% say they are not. And I think Dr. Fauci has said that somewhere between 65 and 75 percent of the population needs to take the vaccine in order for there to be some sort of herd immunity, in order for the spread to be stopped. How do we get to 70, 75 percent if we're not there yet in terms of people being confident and saying that they will take the vaccine? What is the Biden administration planning on doing? Well, Jake, we have to rebuild the confidence and trust that the American public has in the vaccine that they have in in their government and they have in this entire pandemic response. If you break down that percent confidence or the people who said they'll take the vaccine into subgroups, you'll find there are some groups, some cultural groups, some racial ethnic groups in our country where that number is much lower than the average that you're mentioning now. So we really need to invest in getting the message out communicating to people in all cultures and all communities across America 
looking into those groups that uh, that are impacted most, racial disparities, um, all of those challenges. We need to to enlist those trusted messengers, their faith-based organizations, community organizations, people they trust, so they can communicate and build that confidence. I think once people see more people getting vaccinated with this vaccine, they see that it's safe, nothing bad is happening. I think people will start to also gain confidence in understanding the value of being vaccinated and the benefit received from vaccination versus the risk of getting infected, maybe dying. And I think we'll start to see that confidence level rise up with communication and the vaccination process. What about the individuals uh, who right now, um, it's not clear that it's safe for them to take the vaccine. I'm specifically referring to people who weren't part of the test group, pregnant women, uh, kids 16 and under, uh, people who are uh, immunocompromised. Uh, We now know that if people have bad allergic reactions to medications, uh, they should be included in in this group uh, because of what happened in the UK with two individuals having reactions that weren't good. They're okay now. But but what about these other groups of people? Um, Is this just data that's going to accumulate based on people who are willing to get vaccinated? How are we going to find out about all these groups? Well, as you can imagine, those have been hot topics of discussion throughout the day with the FDA, the expert panel, and the company, and, and ethicists as well, and, and, and the public as well. There is an hour for public weigh-in on these questions. There is a, a, some, there's a lot of data actually still outstanding. You don't often have all that information when you're at the emergency use authorization or EUA stage of consideration. A lot of that data comes later and it comes into the consideration whether you license or approve the vaccine. So part of today's discussion includes ongoing clinical trials that the company will continue to conduct to get extra data in those special populations that were not included in the first trials. It's likely that we'll have to have data from those groups before the FDA will be able to be able to make an indication for those special populations. The um, allergic reaction was actually uh, a bit of a surprise coming out of the UK. Again, we, it's not a surprise that we discover some adverse events once the vaccine is used more broadly. What's really encouraging to me is it was caught really soon, reported really soon, and we had information from the FDA just in the last half hour that they are working very closely with the regulatory authorities in the UK There might be uh, some warning or some caution as part of the fact sheets on the vaccine that if you have a history of allergic reactions, perhaps you shouldn't take the vaccine. Or if you do, make sure that the healthcare provider has a treatment for anaphylactic shock or allergic reaction, basically, if they see one after administration of the vaccine. So there are ways to to accommodate Mm -hmm. and manage it very carefully uh, if something comes up. All right, Rick Bright, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and your expertise, as always. Americans going hungry, millions without jobs, running out of time for much-needed help from the federal government. Can Congress get a deal done before it's too late? Stay with us. We're back with our money lead in 853,000. 853,000 Americans filing for unemployment benefits for the first time last week. A heartbreaking number that is significantly more than what was expected this week and the highest number since mid-September. We're seeing this play out across the country in images such as these in Pomona, California, with cars filling a racetrack waiting for food donations. Or, Or here in Dallas, 
bumper-to-bumper traffic in search of food. Or, or in New Jersey, where boxes of food are ensuring families have dinner for the holidays. And things are going to get worse if Congress does not act. 12 million Americans will run out of unemployment benefits the day after Christmas. CNN's Lauren Fox joins me now live. And Lauren's, Lauren, Americans are desperate for help. Where do things stand with this stimulus package? Well, Jake, I wish I had better news for you this afternoon. On Capitol Hill, these talks have really stalled out. And one of the reasons for that is that you're hearing a lot of Republicans in leadership essentially throwing cold water on what that bipartisan group has been able to do so far. They're arguing essentially that there's no deal that they could get on liability, and they're still negotiating, trying to get a deal on liability that would satisfy the majority leader, Mitch McConnell. In fact, he instructed staffers to make it clear that there is nothing at this point that he sees that the bipartisan group could do on state and local and liability that could get them over the finish line in time. Remember, the expectation this entire time has been that whatever happens on the stimulus will be attached to that big spending deal, Jake, and that deadline is next Friday. Right now, that doesn't give them much time to come up with some kind of legislative text. What you've heard from the majority leader is essentially, let's take out what we don't agree on. That's liability protections, that's state and local funding, something that Democrats have asked for, and let's agree and pass what we can. That is an extension of those unemployment benefits. That is more money for individuals to get food stamps. That is another round of paycheck protection program money for small businesses. That's what the majority leader is saying at this point. Meanwhile, Democrats saying they need to let that bipartisan group continue its work. When I pushed the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi yesterday as to whether or not she would get in a room with McConnell and actually negotiate. She said if that's what Republicans are suggesting, good for them, they can get in a room and negotiate with the majority leader. (coughs) Excuse me. What happens next if there's no deal? Well, I think that that's really what members are struggling with right now. What happens next is Americans who are relying on unemployment and an expansion of the unemployment program, which took them from getting 26 weeks of protection to 39, they're going to run out of those benefits. And like you said, that's 12 million Americans, Jake, the day after Christmas. And it's just absolutely a catastrophe. Um, I don't even know what to say. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate that, Lauren Fox. More than 291,000 have died from the coronavirus. And we want to take a moment today to to remember just one, just one of those lives taken too soon. Jeremy Morgan was 44 years old. He's a husband, a father, a high school football and softball coach in North Texas. He passed away Sunday after being hospitalized due to COVID-19. His children sharing their grief on Twitter. His son, Will, writing to the man who taught me how to be a man. I say thank you. All I have ever wanted to do is be like you, and never have I been more proud to call you my father. His daughter, Adeline, says he was, quote, perfectly healthy before contracting the virus. Jeremy Morgan, remembered as a beloved coach, mentor, and father. May his memory and the memories of all of those we have lost in this horrific pandemic be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now.